Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. We touched briefly last time on Romans 5 and 12 and 18 are the primary texts that I want to deal with. But before this, I want to wrap things up with Augustine on baptism because this leads into where he got the idea of original sin and basically developed that concept from the Manichaean Gnosticism that he developed. So they would use passages out of context, obviously Augustine would, to support baptismal regeneration in order to alleviate original sin. So last time we spent time understanding original sin, that it's an Augustinian concept that Calvinists now use, original sin. So what Augustine did is he came up with this concept and then you had to have a rectification of it. And so what he did is he came up with baptismal regeneration. And then he would go out and support this with passages. And so on the back page of last week's handout, it says Augustine on baptism. On the second page, you have John 3, 5. You see that passage is on the back page, second part of that paper from last week. And this is from Ken Wilson's book, The Foundation of Augustinian Calvinism. You all got that? Okay, so let me refresh our minds. What Augustine came up with to deal with original sin is baptismal regeneration. And then they started, like we talked about, baptizing children at that time, and then eventually sprinkling them because the moms didn't like their kids being dunked in the water. But it was to take away original sin and put them on level footing, so to speak, and get them away from being condemned for Adam's sin. Now, we're going to study a little bit about Romans 5 in just a bit, but I just want to go, you know, go with what Augustine was teaching and where he got this stuff from, obviously from Manichaean Gnosticism. Unfortunately, this is the problem with the Christian church at this time, and it happened very early on. The Christian church, the Orthodox church at that time, divorced itself from anything Jewish, okay? The early persecution of the church was from the Jewish people themselves. It was Jew-on-Jew persecution, okay? And so that continued on for some time. And then the Gentiles start getting into the church and, in, and, and getting positions in the church and whatnot. And so very early on then, because of, of not only Roman persecution, but Jewish persecution, a lot of the Gentiles became pastors, leaders, and whatnot. And then they ended up basically getting upset with the Jewish persecution. And so they basically divorced themselves from Jewish understanding, Jewish idioms, Jewish context, and all that. The minute, folks, the minute the church went off of the Jewish understanding and then adopted a more Greek philosophical mindset, that's when the church started introducing errors. Okay? So, that being the case, let's bring ourselves up to Augustine. By Augustine, you're talking about four, you know, 411 through 422, 430, all in that neighborhood. So what he did to substantiate baptismal regeneration is he misunderstood a, a classical passage. Okay, I'll read the passage, and you, uh, you probably know it very well. John 3. This is Jesus with Nicodemus. 
Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, here's the deal what Augustine apparently didn't know, because it never comes out in his writings. The Jews knew all about being born again. In fact, they had six ways to be born again in their Judaism. Okay? Six ways. Now, you know, they had bar mitzvah, and they had, you know, a ruler of a synagogue was born again, a king was born again. They had all kinds of different facets about being born again. So when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, it is not like Nicodemus has not heard the word born again. But Augustine doesn't know this because he has divorced himself from the Jewish understanding of born again and all the, and all the implications of the context in which Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Nicodemus should have known what Jesus was talking about, but unfortunately Nicodemus has the Judaistic concept of being born again. That's why Nicodemus says, well, how can a man return back to its womb? Because in order to be born again, you had to go through all these things that the Jews required. Now, to make, make this understandable, it is almost like Catholicism where you have to, you know, be baptized or whatever, but then you have to go through a string of rituals, seven of them, seven sacraments, in order to be saved. So it was like that. Judaism had their string of things necessary to be born again. Okay, so that sets the stage, and then we continue on. It says, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of water and born of the Spirit. If the Gentiles don't know what born of water is, guess what Augustine used to substantiate baptismal regeneration? That passage. That passage. You must be born of water and says, aha, that's baptism. And of the Spirit. Now, the Millerites did that with Church of Christ. They require baptism for salvation. Other cults require baptism for salvation. Mormons, whatever. Uh, all, all these, you know, works-based salvation types of groups believe that you've got to be baptized in order to be saved, including the Catholics, as you know. Okay. Being born of water is a Jewish idiom, which doesn't mean or refer to a mikvah doesn't refer to being immersed into water. Born of water, maybe some of you already know, means what? Physical birth. Now, wait a second. What water is associated to physical birth? The embryonic fluid. In the Jewish culture, being born of water referred to that embryonic fluid that comes out. A woman's water will break, right? And so the term being born of water meant that you had human parents and that you were born naturally, okay? And then Jesus goes, so you got a first thing, you, you got to be born of water, but that, that, that birth, has problems with it because it has a sin nature in it. So therefore, 
Jesus is making the logical step to, therefore, you have to be spiritually reborn because you have a sin nature, obviously, from other passages. And so born of the Spirit is being regenerated, given eternal life and being regenerated. So that's how simple it is to understand that passage. But if you don't know the Hebrew idiom, you see how you can foul that up pretty quick? Or you could use it as a pretext to create a doctrine, which is still with us today, baptismal regeneration. That's a good point. Excellent. And that's an excellent point. And that's understanding Hebrew parallelism. So this is what happens, and Dave's pointing out a good thing, with Gentile misunderstandings. They won't see the Hebrew parallelism, and they'll say, ah, that other phrase says something different. And that different phrase is actually saying the same thing as the previous one before it. Because it's, it, it, it might, it, Hebrew parallelism is they say it one way and then underneath it they'll say it another way. But it's the same meaning, if that makes sense. And then, it, but, but Gentiles don't get that in their interpretation. You can see it in their commentaries. You can totally see it in the commentaries. Well, he says this, but it seems like he's contradicting himself when he says this. And they'll try to, do some dancing with it theologically. And it's like, no, he's saying the same thing in a different way. Okay, so why does Messiah, just, this is an aside, okay? This is beyond what we're talking about. Why does he have to mention that you have to be human? Why even throw that in there? Isn't that a given? Why does he say you have to be born of, of water first, Okay. And then you have to be have a second birth. Yeah. Go ahead. He died for humans. So that would eliminate fallen angels, right? And then who else does that eliminate? Animals, yeah. Okay, who, who else does that eliminate? Nephilim. Please, please, you, you always, in the Jewish mindset, especially in Second Temple era, Second Temple era, was highly dominated by the thought of Nephilim. See, in order to be human, you have to have a father and a mother that are human. No, not, no, 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 you're, you're, you're pressing the metaphor too far. The metaphor is referring to human birth, not, not just because you're in a, in a woman's stomach. They're born of a woman, but they have an angelic father. And so, with that being said, I think what you have to understand is, see, Nicodemus, the Jewish thought, I mean, it, I mean, highly on their minds was the concepts of, of Nephilim. And again, this is us being so far removed as Gentiles, because Augustine didn't like, by the way, the Nephilim narrative. So you know what he came up with? The Sethite view. I'm telling you, this guy is behind a lot of the junk today and the mistranslation of, of other passages. So Genesis 6, he said that was an embarrassment to the pagans to have some supernatural thing where angels are coming in, fallen angels are coming in, cohabitating with women and producing giants and Nephilim. He didn't like that. He said that's a stumbling block for pagans. So they sanitized it and said, well, this is the Sephite view. And, then, and so there's, uh, these are humans doing this. And it's like, well, then, if two humans get together and have a baby, how come they're turning into giants? 
How do you explain the monstrosities that are coming from this and the eruption that happened before Noah's flood where you have DNA being messed with and, and all the cultures having mythologies and stuff? Nonetheless, it was Augustine that did this. It's Augustine who spiritualized prophecy too, by the way. This dude is not to be celebrated. I'm sorry. He did some very scary damage to the church. He brought in spiritualization of the text or allegorization. He did this to Genesis 6. And so when you see this interaction with Jesus and Nicodemus, of course Jesus is going to mention you have to be human, number one, because the Messiah is human. Okay, what is that? Why is that a big deal? What was Genesis 6 about? What were they do? Why were they doing this? Because they knew that Eve was told from her seed or a woman's seed, the Messiah is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. So Satan's strategy is to disrupt the genetic code in order that the Messiah can't come because there's nobody that's fully human. And this is why Peter will remark that Jesus, upon dying on the cross, went into Tartarus and proclaimed victory. And there's only a certain type of fallen angel in Tartarus. And guess who that angel is or are? The Genesis 6 angels who created Nephilim. So it's all tied together. And so when you see his interaction with Nicodemus, man, this is the hot button. Yeah. Are you asking why Jesus was baptized? That's okay. Well, one of the things about his baptism is he said he told John the Baptist, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. And so one is for an example to us as to do it. One is to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. One is to start his ministry as any Levitical priest. Not, not that he's a Levitical priest, but this idea is he's going to start his ministry at this point. And when a priest started his... He's a, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but when a priest started his ministry, he was mikvah. And so there's a lot of issues of why he's being baptized. No, um, I, I think what, what you have to understand about this is, is him being born of a woman, which he was, but without an earthly father, is giving us the idea that the sin nature then is not passed on to him. That's the point of that. That because he doesn't have an earthly father... See, it, one of the things the scriptures are saying is that it's at, Eve didn't pass anything, Adam passed it on. So we, we get the idea... And there's debate on this, but the, the idea is that it's the father who actually passes on the sin nature. Now, there's some debate. Some people say, well, the, 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 the woman can too, and so the Holy Spirit overshadowed the woman from passing on the sin nature to Jesus. But there's, there's debate on that. But the other side says it's the father, it's the male who has the seed, and that seed is passed on through the male. And so if that's the case... And I'm not dogmatic about it, but if that's the case, his virgin birth is showing you that he cannot and does not have a sin nature because he's the spotless lamb. And so it wasn't passed on to him like it was passed on to us. Just one thought. One thought. If that helps. If, he's, if something comes to your mind, let me know. 
Well, I'll leave you with this homework because I don't want to get too deep into this. Here's the deal. you got to answer to me why the Antichrist resurrects from the dead from the abuso instead of the pit. He comes from the, he comes from the abuso instead of the bottomless pit. Only humans go to the bottomless pit. The abuso is where fallen angels go. So why in Revelation 17, the one who was, is not, and comes back from the bottomless pit, why is he coming? Sorry, not bottomless pit. I think I got my pits. My pits wrong. Sorry. Let me get myself clearer. There's two pits. One is the bottomless pit and one is the other pit. Let me see. Uh, here's a mind that has wisdom. The beast which you saw was and is not, so was alive, is dead, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Sorry, the bottomless pit, uh, the abuso, is where fallen angels temporarily are confined to. Tartarus is a permanent location of fallen angels until the great white throne judgment. So, so the bottomless, he comes from the bottomless pit, but Today, when we say someone dies without Christ and they go to hell, what we're really saying is they go to Abaddon, they go to Apollyon, they go to the pit. And so right now, in the center of the earth is the pit. But he doesn't come, he doesn't counterfeit resurrect from the pit. So first of all, you've got to answer me that one. Then the second answer you have to answer is Genesis 3.15. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you've got to do your homework. Genesis 3.15, okay. So in the, the Genesis verse is sometimes misunderstood because it talks about her seed and his seed. Right, yeah? So there's enmity between these two offspring. So in Genesis 3.15, I put enmity between you and the woman, okay? Between your seed and her seed. Now, I notice in my Bible, and probably it's in yours, that the her seed is capitalized. And obviously, who's that referring to? Okay, so then tell me, tell me with consistency, please with consistency, then what is the, what is this concept of between Satan's seed? Is it? Now, you gotta be consistent in your hermeneutics. If you're going to say the seed of the woman is singular, the Messiah, would it not be consistent to say, well, then it's referring to a singular seed, even though a seed in the Hebrew can go plural or singular, but it's based on the context, whether it's singular or plural. That's right. Which signifies, Moses was saying, there's something different about the one coming. Because the father is the one who produces the seed, the sperma, right, in Greek. Okay. But then Satan has a seed. And I know what the commentaries already say. I already know it. I've seen them. I know what they say. They'll say this is Jesus in the singular, but then they'll say seed means all of Satan's followers. I don't know. That's your homework. you got to tell me. Yeah, okay, you're all on the hook. You gotta tell me why does the Antichrist counterfeit resurrects from the abuso instead of the pit where humans go? And then you gotta tell me then what is Satan's seed there in Genesis 3.15? Is that singular? Plural. Offspring, which is 
in that context, the Jewish offspring. But in Genesis 3.15, you're talking about all humanity. You're not talk- There's no Jews at this point in time. I know Moses is writing from a Jewish perspective, but if you, you go into Genesis 3.15, there is no Jewish nation at this point in time. So who is the offspring? Who is, who is it? Now, you have options. So if you, I don't want you to be dogmatic necessarily unless you, you figure this out of whether or not that's singular or plural. Um, you need to look at the Hebrew, but then you have to understand context about that to make your decision on that. Okay. I know it's a rabbit trail. That's homework. Okay. Let's go back to Augustine and, and baptismal regeneration. Before I leave this, this discussion about John 3, are we all okay on the same page of understanding the Hebrew idiom of being born of water? Any questions on that so far? Okay, let's move on then. Again, I want to turn to Romans 5.12, and this is a very difficult passage, but I think once we unpack it, I think we, we will see that there's something going on here from a Calvinist standpoint versus a biblical standpoint. Again, this is where Augustine got his idea that human beings are condemned from birth and required required baptismal regeneration. So I've entitled this in, in your handout here, Inherited Proxy Corporate Condemnation from Adam, which is what Calvinists teach, versus Inherited Sin Nature from Adam, which leads to sin, death, and individual servitude to sin slash condemnation. I know those are long uh, uh, words, but these are the things that encapsulate what's happening in, in Romans 5. Let's take a look at a few things here. Let's start in verse 12 there, and then we're going to unpack this a little bit. It says, therefore, just as one man sin entered the world, we know that's the fall, right, that Paul's talking about, and death through sin. Because why? The wages of sin is death, right? So death is going to come from sin, right? And thus, death spread to all men. So just take that at face value. What is it saying? We are dying because of sin. It's that simple, okay? That Adam's sin caused us to become sinners because he passed something on to us that Paul will call the old man, or we call the sin nature. And because of that sin nature, it gives us a proclivity to eventually ratify that sin nature when we reach that age of understanding what we're doing, and then we actively rebel and commit sin, just as Adam did in the Garden of Eden. So we actually will ratify that. So because of that sin nature, we die. We die physically. And we die spiritually. Okay? But again, I come back to the idea of infants and babies and mentally handicapped people. Just because they have a sin nature, are they condemned? No. It appears that David said he will go to see his own son. Okay, that being the case then, but the Calvinists take this the other way. And they'll say, look, Jesus said, in order to see the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. How can a child be born again? You see the dilemma they're doing? 
Jesus is saying, you have to believe in me and I'll give you eternal life. How can you, Brandon, say that a child or a baby or a mentally handicapped person can go to heaven? Because he told Nicodemus, you got to be born again. How can a child believe and be born again? So I guess what they came up with, they go to hell. Because you're right, they didn't get born again. So to be consistent in their system, you had to believe and be born again. Or in their system, born again and then believe. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He is saying that we inherited something from Adam. Did we inherit what? We inherited a nature that wants to cause us to sin. Okay, let's continue on on some of the bullet points. Paul never says that Adam's sin was imputed to us. You will not find scriptures about that. Augustine believed in a seminal view that that you were seminally in Adam when he sinned and therefore you share in his condemnation. Okay? The other view is the federal head view that that he's our federal head, he represents us, so when he sinned, he represented all of us and plunged us all into that same condemnation. But I don't see Paul saying that in this text. And I, I, and I, I honestly, I've challenged the Calvinists to show me a passage that says that we're seminally, seminally in Adam or, or federally held accountable by him or to him. So this, this death then spreads to all of us through the sin nature. That is what's passed on. And so therefore, what's the condemnation about? Are you and I condemned for what other people do. You sure that you're not condemned for what Adam did? Are you sure about that? Okay, so there's a difference between inheriting a sin nature being, but except, uh, instead of being blamed for what Adam did. Does that make sense? Okay. On your other, on page two, I, I quote, and there's a lot of passages about this. Ezekiel 18, 19 through 20 says this, Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? This is a question asked to God, right? Because the son has done what is lawful and right, God says, and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins, what? Shall die. Wages of sin is death, Right? But look what he says. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And there's other passages I can point to, but this is the clearest one. What did Ezekiel say in that passage? You are not held responsible for your father's sins. Now, what does it mean then in that other text that says, I visit the sins on the third and fourth generation? How do you square that? What does that mean? How does those two passages work where I don't hold you accountable for what your parents did, but yet I visit the sins on the third and fourth generation? What is that? Yeah, modeling. What are you going to say, Stephen? Yeah, okay, so proclivities. So you're not held accountable for your granddaddy's sin, grandma's sin, mom, dad, but 
what can happen is that you will repeat the same proclivities as you saw in your family of origin and continue down that path. So if your family has a history of alcoholism, that can pass through. You're not held responsible for the alcoholism of your grandpa or your father, but you're held responsible for your own alcohol consumption or whatever you're doing. And, or whether it's, it's, it's whatever standard you allow to be passed on, and then you pass it on to your third, fourth generations of kids and grandkids, and you'll see the same pattern erupt in your grandchildren. They'll have the same problems. That's what that passage means, but you're not held accountable. If you are good with that, and that, that makes sense to you, you're not Augustinian. You're not a Calvinist then. If that makes sense to you, say, yes, I'm not accountable for what Adam did. Do I have something that Adam gave me? Yes. He passed something on. So in a lot of ways, what I want you to think of the analogy is that, you know, genetically, your parents passed something on to you. Apparently, my parents passed on celiac to me. And so I now have celiac because in my family, they have it. And guess what I did? As a great gift of inheritance, I have given now two of my three children celiac. And so I have passed that on. Whether I like it or not, or whether they liked it or not, I passed that on. They, they, had, they couldn't say no. I couldn't resist whatever. It just got passed on genetically. Okay? So I didn't pass on celiac because I ate a bunch of bread, and then, and then because I ate so much bread, now they have problems. It's not that. It was a genetic thing I passed on. So if you use that analogy, then you'll understand how the sin nature came to us. It was passed on. And the sin nature then will be acted on and then cause condemnation. Okay. The other direct consequence, if you go to verse 16, it says, and the gift, salvation, right, or freedom, is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Okay, so let's unpack that just a little bit. The judgment which came from the offense. What is the judgment that came from the offense of Adam? Death. So God says to Adam, dying you shall die. What then is that condemnation? What is that? What, what was the penalty? What, what's happening here? The condemnation in seeing is that Adam now has a sin nature. Okay? Now, what Paul will refer to that sin nature and what it causes people to do is that at that point, the sin nature is part of the condemnation because it makes Adam a slave to sin. You've heard those concepts from Paul, right? You're a slave to sin. The condemnation then is not only dying you shall die, but it is now that Adam is a slave to sin, and therefore everyone born with a sin nature will be a slave to that sin nature. That's the condemnation. Okay? That's the penalty. 
And actually, the word condemnation probably shouldn't be used. That's not, that's not the right word. And unfortunately, your English text does that. I don't know why they do that. I think it's because of Calvinist interpreters. No, I, what I would say, and, and what Zane Hodges and other guys who are, are way better Greek scholars than I am, is the word condemnation is kata krima. Kata krima. And kata krima refers to a penalty that's imposed as the result of the judgment. The judgment is dying, you shall die. The penalty then is servitude to sin. So God's judgment on Adam brings servitude to sin. And therefore, we inherit that sin nature and thus we are slaves to sin. And so instead of saying condemnation, the better word would probably for kata, uh, katakrima would be penalty. Katakrima is used here to translate ice, katakrima. The word katakrima is used uh, right here in the first time in Romans, but it also occurs in verse 18, and then it's picked up in uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Okay, so according to BDAG, they say in this word, the use of the term condemnation does not denote merely a pronouncement of guilt, but an adjudication of punishment. So basically the word must be understood technically to denote a burden ensuing from a judicial pronouncement, basically servitude. So it's a, a penalty from a judicial announcement from God on Adam and Eve. You are now slaves to sin. Hence, Paul is then saying, Messiah brings what to those who are slaves to sin if you believe in him? Freedom. Freedom from being a slave to sin. So Paul is highlighting in chapter 5, not condemnation as Augustinian or Augustine would interpret it as, but more of the penalty of servitude to sin and saying that in Adam all have the servitude of sin because of the sin nature. Thus, when Messiah comes and people believe in the Messiah, he frees them from the servitude of the sin nature. Does that make sense? That's Romans 5. But see how the word condemnation in your English is not telling you the whole story. This is the problem with modern-day interpreters using English words that don't communicate exactly what the Greek is saying. And this is where the mis misunderstanding comes. Now, here's the deal. I'm not a Greek scholar. I had seminary, took Greek, took Hebrew, but I'm not a Greek scholar. But I learned the tools and how to use it. How come they can't? I mean, my level of Greek and my level of Hebrew, as far as scholarly is concerned, is like kindergarten compared to these Greek scholars and these Hebrew scholars. But yet they translate the passage in a Calvinistic way. Why? Why? Why would you do that? If you know it doesn't mean condemnation, but it means servitude from a penalty that God puts on Adam, why would you do that? 
What do you think? <laughs> Not all. But a lot of the translators, especially like the ESV and other Bibles like that, are translated by Calvinists. And I hate to tell you this, they like to put their little spin on words to make it fit into their system. I hate to tell you that. So not all translations are equal. That's why I refuse to use the ESV, because its translators are Calvinistic. I use the New King James. I like the King James. I think it's, it's, it's more faithful to the, the text. But understand that you get into other Bibles, and I'm not saying the King James is the only Bible, please don't get, it, get me wrong. I'm not saying that. But you got to know who the translators are because they don't just simply translate, they interpret according to their theological presuppositions. Does that make sense? If you go into certain texts, they will, they will monkey around with some words. I'm not saying they're trying to be dishonest. I'm just saying they probably are not even aware of what they're doing. But it sure makes sense when you look at the Greek and you start realizing that word doesn't mean condemnation as Augustine, Augustine interpreted it as. It means servile, servile a, 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 a penalty of servitude is what I get. Okay, I got to stop there. Any questions? Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.